I want to talk about uh, Palm Sunday. Um, maybe you're familiar with what Palm Sunday is, but if you're not, I'm going to talk about what it is uh, and also uh, why it matters so much. Uh, see, Palm Sunday was the, the Sunday before the resurrection. And so today is the beginning of what many call Holy Week, a week leading up to uh, the Last Supper, uh, the, the cross, the burial, the resurrection. Um, but today has a lot of significance on its own. Um, we're going to talk about what Palm Sunday is and, and the worship that happened. But the thing is, once the, once the palms went down, everything changed. But today is a celebration. I don't want to take away from that. But we're going to talk about how it leads up to Easter. And so I want to read in Luke 19, 28 to 40. We're actually going to go through a few different scriptures uh, from the Bible today. They're going to be up on the screen so you can follow along. Um, but I want you to see the whole story. And so start with me here. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They're good at following directions. They, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. All right, so we're at this moment, um, what we call Palm Sunday, uh, but Jesus had been healing people, he had been performing miracles, he had been telling people about the kingdom of heaven, and now he comes in and the people are excited. I mean, they, are, they, they use these terms that for thousands of years they've been waiting for a Messiah, a Savior, um, and they say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He's of God, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It is, it's a victory. I mean, if you put yourself in these shoes, I don't know who's keeping score, but Jesus is winning right now. I mean, this is a, this is a, a wonderful day. I, I think about how the disciples may have felt in this moment. You know, they had been with him and they had seen great things, but there was a lot of naysayers, a lot of uh, people who maybe weren't uh, on his side. And Jesus said some things that maybe made, made them think, well, I don't really know what's going to happen. But today it's like you're, you're coming in uh, to, to Jerusalem. I mean, you're going towards Jerusalem. You're coming in and, and, and the people are praising him and giving him uh, names of or, or titles of, uh, of God. They won. It doesn't take long, a week. Three chapters in your Bibles, if you're in, in Luke with us, for Jesus to be arrested, crucified, uh, and, and he rose. But, man, that, the week, the upcoming week, it's going to be a challenge. But today, though, is, is the good day for the followers of Jesus. But I, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I 
thought, well, if I were in this, in this situation and, and he's coming in and people are, are praising him, I'm going to be pretty happy about this. But what about Jesus? How, how did Jesus feel in this situation? We don't have to wonder. He actually, actually talks through, and that's why we're going to, going to look at some different scriptures. You get to know what Jesus thought when he came in in this moment. And it may not be what you think he, he thought. Luke chapter 9, verse 21, the first prediction that Jesus makes of his death. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. A little bit later, uh, Luke 9, 44 and 45, I'm, I'm reading these because he adds more details each time he, he shares with his followers. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. I wonder why did he not want them to know what was going to happen? How would that have changed this moment, this day of, of, of Jesus being worshipped? Uh, how would that have changed them following up to the end? The third time he, he predicts, Luke 18, 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Again, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Three different times, Jesus made it clear where he was going to go, what was going to happen to him, and who was going to do it. Jesus told the followers that the people who are claiming to follow God, they're going to turn on him or, or, uh, or go against him, and they're going to kill him. If there's nothing else uh, that you hear from me uh, today, I want you to hear this. Knowing what Jesus knew, knowing that, that he knew, he told them three different times, this is where we're going to Jerusalem, and, and they're going to flog me, which very severe beating, and they're going to kill me. He still went. How did he feel when he was going in on the colt? How did he feel when the people around him were, were praising him? He knew what was going to happen, but he still went. I think of uh, how much we like certain kinds of stories. Uh, Captain John Miller, saving, saving Private Ryan. Spock, you may have heard of Spock on Star Wars. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> William Wallace, Braveheart. Obi-Wan, that one's actually Star Wars. Iron Man, uh, Steve Rogers or Captain America. Uh, the Marvel movies, 22 movies, uh, all, all centered around this idea of a hero making a sacrifice, of someone willing to lay down one's life for one's friends, which we know Jesus said that that's love. Now, those are characters in movies. There were actually some people who did this in, in real life as well. Uh, I, I didn't even consider it until after I was uh, reviewing my notes this morning, and I actually have three stories all from World War II. Um, but the first one in 1944, a guy named John Robert Fox found himself 
fighting the Nazis in Italy. It was here, December of that year, he was tasked to run a, uh, a small village in Tuscany. And the village had been overrun by, uh, by Nazi Germany, and the Americans were in retreat. But Fox found a house to hit in. He went on the second floor. He used his radio to call in um, uh, art, uh, the artillery fire to be directed so that the U.S. forces could uh, regroup and recover and, and, uh, and counterattack. But Fox, he, he said something that threw off the, the, uh, the gunner on the other end. Um, he actually told him where to fire, and he said his exact position. I mean, the exact house. He, was, he would be shot. And so the gunner assumed it was a mistake, but these were Fox's words to the gunner. He said, fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. As he had planned, the artillery barrage did work out, uh, gave his, uh, his, his, uh, his troop a, a chance to counterattack. Counter and when the U.S. Army entered the village, they found Fox's body surrounded by a uh, hundred Germans, German soldiers. He made a sacrifice. I mean, we would call that man a hero. Salvo Diaquisto, also during the war. When war broke out, he was sent uh, to keep order in a small village just north of Rome. And Salvo was on duty. He was like a military police of some kind. September 23rd, 1943, he went to church, got out, and he saw a, the feared SS officers approaching. And so he tried to uh, greet them, and instead they hit him in the head. And, and the SS man informed Salvo that, that uh, someone had caused an explosion and killed, some of, or killed one of his own soldiers, one of the SS soldiers. And so this guy came wanting revenge. And so what he did, he, he took 22 local men, and he said uh, that they would all be shot if Salvo didn't find the person who caused the attack, who killed one of his men. And so Salvo had to watch innocent men. He made, they made them dig their own graves, getting ready to be shot. But Salvo tried to, tried to calm the men. He tried to reason with the SS officer. It wouldn't happen. And so Salvo confessed to the crime, a crime that he did not commit. He confessed, saying that he had caused it by himself. The 22 men were let go free. Salvo was executed, faced the firing squad alone that night. I think about heroes. We, 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 we love the stories sacrificing, uh, loving other people so much, being willing to, to make, the, uh, make the move. But when I think of these guys and I think of Jesus, I see a big difference. See, these people in the, in the stories as well as uh, the real-life stories, these were missions that they were trying to win. Now, there was a last resort, okay, this isn't going to work out, I have to do something. I have to do something to save these people. But that was not the mission going in for any of these stories. You don't go into a mission uh, ahead of time. Maybe as a last resort, we could probably find some of those stories. But Jesus knew the outcome. He, he predicted it. He, he had an opportunity to turn around. He still went. Why? These people and these stories, fictional and real, they laid down their lives for their friends. They died for the innocent people. But who did Jesus die for? In our reading this week, Luke 12, uh, 12 through 16, I came across a part that I've never given much attention to, but I thought it was too good to skip on Palm Sunday. So I want to show you why. Luke 13, 31 to 35, right between Jesus' second 
and third predictions of his death. Verse 31, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. All right, so now we've got some confirmation here. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to be killed. He tells them, his followers again, I'm going to be killed. Now, now the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders come and say, hey, Herod wants to kill you. What about Herod? You remember our story not that long ago when John the Baptist was beheaded? by this same Herod. This is a real threat. When Herod wants to kill someone, Herod kills someone. Some say the Pharisees were looking out for Jesus. Others say he just they didn't want him to go to Jerusalem because that's where he was trying to go complete a mission. They didn't really know what it looked like fully, so they were trying to deter him. Jesus responded, verse 32, he replied, go tell that fox I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, when I first read that, I thought, he's complimenting him. He calls him a fox, so he's cunning. Now, a fox was a scavenger, a predator, but a predator that was not like a, a lion. It was a weak predator. What he was calling him was insignificant. What Herod uh, threats Jesus with? He, he, wasn't, he wasn't threatened. Jesus knew what he was going to do, and Herod wasn't going to change what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus says that he's going for a short time to complete his mission. But the thing that really stuck out to me the most is what's Jesus' deal with Jerusalem? I mean, there's a lot about Jerusalem in the Bible, and we're not in Jerusalem. None of us are from Jerusalem. We're not Israelites. Why is it such a big deal? Well, he tells us. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. God had been trying to draw the Israelites, which Jerusalem's representing, towards him, to him, for thousands of years, so that those people could represent him to the rest of the world. It wasn't that they were the only people that God was after, but he was going to use them. And so he'd been trying to bring them towards him. Jewish tradition claimed that Jewish people were under God's wings, his protection. And when a Jewish person converted a Gentile, he or she was brought under the, the wings of God. So Jerusalem represented God's chosen people used for God to reach the world. Verse 35, look, your house is left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus' entire ministry up to this point had been to offer the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, uh, the, the keys to the kingdom in a way, to Jerusalem to use them. But they rejected him. They killed the prophets. They rejected Jesus' words. And now he would reject them. He says that, that they were not willing to come to him. But I, when, I read, when I just read it, uh, isolated, just read the scripture, it looks like it's kind of like, okay, you messed up. I mean, the first, his first words here are like calling him out. You, you really didn't take me seriously. But he's not happy about it. He's really not happy about rejecting Jerusalem. Remember where we started this morning? I know we, let a, we, we read a lot of scripture, but Jesus came in on a cult being praised. And when he's coming in, on a mission, and then he gets up to Jerusalem, and he sees the people who uh, 
these people who had rejected him, who were about to kill him. And so this means war, right? No, that's not Jesus. You know the, the first response Jesus had when he saw Jerusalem, a, a city full of people who were about to flog him and execute him, uh, people who did not take him seriously or listen to his, his words. How would you respond? Your enemies, really. I mean, if you really think about it, he didn't call them enemies, but they were his enemies. They were, they were, he was their enemy, all right, because they were after him. How did he respond? Luke 19, 41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it. A city full of people that are about to kill you, that you, even, you know it. And he comes up to it, and he's, he's overwhelmed with emotion. And only two times in the Bible do we see when Jesus wept, when Lazarus died, and when he comes face to face with Jerusalem. These people who God wanted to use so much, but they rejected him. See why he still went? He then tells them what's going to happen to them and their children. Again, he's not happy about it. If you, even you, only, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Again, he doesn't want this to happen. But he's telling them what's going to happen. God came to them. He gave them second chances. They refused. So judgment, right? Our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. They keep going. You know the story does not end here. Yes, they refused. They rejected his words. They were even planning to kill him. And I think, how does that, what does that look like for us? Do we reject him? Do we listen to his words? Do we refuse Jesus? The sins that, that he died for, I think, well, he died for my sins, even the sins I haven't committed. And, and it's kind of a general term, like, you know, that's nice. This is, this is where it shows how real it is. Not only did he die for our sins, these people in Jerusalem were, who were about to kill him, he died for their sins. It meant something. The last couple times I've, I've preached, I, I mentioned the idea of a transactional faith. Um, I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to give to God, and I'm going to obey God, but whenever uh, I need help, he better do something about it. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm sick, he better heal me. When I'm in need, he, he needs to take care of me. That's a transactional faith. I do for him, and then I expect he does for me. And I said that's not the case. There, there's nothing about that. But I, I messed up. There actually is a, a transactional faith. When Jesus still decided to go, he did it in the form of a transaction. See, sin must be paid for, just like a debt must be paid. And we're okay with this uh, idea, even if, even if we wouldn't have asked for it. Maybe I wouldn't say, Jesus, would you die for me? But, but I understand this idea of, of punishment. We, we get this when we're kids. You know, uh, I, I had a couple sisters that uh, we fought for the TV, and you know, and, and if, if one of my sisters wouldn't let me watch what I wanted and, and, uh, and then, you know, was really rude and not that they ever were because they were super nice. They're not here right now. I'm, I'm safe. Uh, 
they would beat me up and take, watch what they wanted. But anyway, um, but when you're little and, and that happens, you, you think, okay, I want, I, want, uh, I want revenge here, or um, I want mom or dad to come in and say, hey, uh, the way you acted against your brother, you're grounded for a week. Right? I don't just want, I'm sorry, and then we move forward. I'm like, no, I, I was wronged here, so I want, I want something made right. And we grow up with that attitude our whole lives. We, we understand this idea of punishment, and when there's no punishment, then we say there was no justice. When it comes time for our punishment, for our sin, we have sinned. We don't have to take it. It's not fair. It's not the way it should be. Have you ever been in the wrong? You've wronged someone. You've done something you shouldn't have, and it wasn't held against you. You were forgiven. It feels good. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. We were wrong. We sinned against him, and he took it from us. It feels good. God's kingdom does not operate like we think it would. See, most kingdoms... They do anything they can to protect their king. That's the goal. Uh, it's an unspoken uh, idea in the, in the game of chess. You know, chess, you, you take the king, you win. The king falls, you win. So you do everything you can to protect the king. That's how a kingdom works. My third World War II reference. The Allied invasion of Normandy, D-Day, June 6, 1944. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill decided that he wanted to join the forces and watch the battle up close uh, from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. He wanted to be right there in the action. That's what a good leader does, right? But U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower, he thought that was a bad idea, and he thought that the prime minister might be killed uh, you know, in, in the battle. So when it, when it became apparent that Churchill was not going to back down, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority, King George VI. The king went and told Churchill that if, if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion up close, he could only conclude that it was also his own duty to join him on the battleship. At that point, Churchill agreed to back down, for he knew that he could never expose the king to such danger. That's how a kingdom works. King Jesus did the exact opposite. On the cross, he offered a, a king's ransom, a ransom that we should be paying for him. That's not how it works. He gave his life for his people. He would die for all the wrongs that we would ever do, completely atoning for our sins. The crown of thorns that was meant to mock Jesus, uh, that, it, that, that they put on him to, to, uh, to make him a joke, actually proclaimed his king, him as king, even in death. So Jesus, coming in on a colt, led to this. This is, uh, I have our communion, our bread, our juice, representing the, the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus coming in on this, his, his followers think he wins, but Jesus knows this is going to happen first. Yes, the resurrection will happen. He still is going to win. He knows how to win, and he does it, but it cost him his life. It cost a real sacrifice. This is God's display of love to us. Knowing that it would lead to the cross, Jesus still wins. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Uh, you've shown us that. 
in your words. Uh, you've shown us that by giving us a better way to live, uh, even back with back to the Israelites, giving them a way that would that would help them to be blessed, a way that would uh, allow them to to know you, be closer to you, to follow you, and, and just a better way of living. Uh, but just like the Israelites, we fall short. We choose our own ways. We think that we're better and smarter than you. And you forgive us still. You still showed us that in our arrogance and our pride that you still love us and you would do anything to bring us back to you. I pray that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open to trust you more uh, in, in life now. And I thank you that you've given us a hope uh, for eternity, uh, that even if we mess up on our last day, we still have hope uh, because of your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. And it's his name we pray.